name is Amanda Newland Davis, and I run Oklahoma Cold Cases along with my partner Jen. At Oklahoma Cold Cases, we try to shine light on the cases of the missing, murdered, and unidentified that otherwise don't get much media attention. For the last four years, we've existed solely on Facebook, sharing the posts of the missing, murdered, and unidentified of Oklahoma. But this past year, we've branched out and started a database in which we list all of the names of every cold case that is in Oklahoma that we are currently aware of. You can find us at oklahomacoldcases.org. You're listening to Sirens, a true crime podcast brought to you by the Sirens Network. This podcast contains explicit content, so listener discretion is advised. The opinions expressed on this podcast are solely the views of the hosts and do not reflect the views of affiliates, associates, or sponsors of this podcast. This is Sirens, a true crime podcast. A life might end, but sometimes their case lives forever. Charlie Donnelly the girl who was taken. In 1995, the movie Seven with Brad Pitt and Morgan Freeman was released, as well as Batman Forever, Apollo 13, Toy Story, Casper, While You Were Sleeping, Clueless, and Pulp Fiction. Top charting songs that year were Gangsta's Paradise by Coolio at the top, Waterfalls by TLC, as well as Kiss from a Rose, Mariah Carey's Fantasy, December by Collective Soul, and several hits by Hootie and the Blowfish. That year, members of the Doomsday Cult, Om Shinrikyo, founded by Shoko Asahara in 1987, carried out the Tokyo subway nerve gas attack, killing 14 people and leading to over a thousand others injured. The attack remains the deadliest terrorist incident in Japanese history. That year, Michael Jordan announced his return to the Chicago Bulls basketball team and the NBA through a two-word press release stating, quote, I'm back. American boxer Mike Tyson is released from prison after serving nearly three years for rape. And rising star Selena is murdered by her fan club president, Yolanda Saldivar. 1995 was also the year that the internet was entirely privatized, with the United States government no longer providing public funding, marking the beginning of the information age. America Online and Prodigy offered access to the World Wide Web system for the first time, releasing browsers that made it easily accessible to the general public. For those gamers out there, Sega launched the Saturn game console in North America that year, and the Washington Post and New York Times published the Unabomber's Manifesto. Former American football star O.J. Simpson goes to trial this year and is found not guilty of double murder for the deaths of former wife Nicole Brown Simpson and her friend Ronald Goldman. This trial is publicized on national TV. On April 19, 1995, Timothy McVeigh set off a bomb at the Alfred P. Murrah Federal Building in Oklahoma City, killing 168 people, including eight federal marshals and 19 children. 680 others are wounded. For more information on that case, please check out our three-part miniseries, Up in Smoke, where we discuss the bombing in detail as well as the events leading up to it, like the siege at Waco. 
1995 was a historical year with white Broncos and even more tragedy. But before the year begins, we travel back to my hometown of Ada, Oklahoma, where 15-year-old Daniel Furr leaves home for the last time. Join me as I discuss this case with my co-host, Professor Mandy McNeely, as well as Daniel's mother and sister, Gail and Chelsea. Please keep in mind that this is not a closed case, and many documents and interviews done by police, family, or I cannot fully be released to the public. Therefore, for the purpose of this podcast, most names have been chalked up to initials, while some names have been left out completely for safety of the source. This is from the Justice for Daniel Fur Facebook page. Daniel was born on January 29, 1980, in Ada, Oklahoma, to Gail Cowden. He brought lots of joy to his family, but especially to his grandmother, Wanda. His mother married Harvey Fur when Daniel was four and later adopted Daniel as his own. Daniel soon became the older brother to two sisters and a brother. He was the typical older brother. He loved his siblings, but found plenty of time to pick on them. Daniel had a very quizzical mind and loved to see how things worked. He was always taking things apart. His mother worked at a hardware store where they had a returns box and she supplied him with plenty of items to take apart and he loved this. Daniel was very smart and learning came easy for him. He would lay in bed with his mother and talk about space. He was interested in the stars and black holes. His fun, energetic, and outgoing personality made it easy for him to make friends. He wasn't into typical sports such as baseball or basketball. However, he enjoyed fishing, skateboarding, being outdoors, and spending time with family and friends. At age 12, he joined Boy Scout Troop 9. He loved going to Camp Simpson and participating in the many outdoor activities the Boy Scouts offered. He received a Boy Scout survival kit, which included a small pan. His favorite band was Nirvana. When the lead singer Kurt Cobain died, Daniel put the year Kurt was born and the year he died in white spray paint on his wall. His mother was not very happy when she saw it. Daniel's favorite color was green, and he liked maple leaves. He had a green shirt with a maple leaf on it that he wore often. Daniel had random ideas. One day, he came home and wanted to paint his wall forest green and paint daisies all over it. And in the middle of one of the daisies, he wanted a smiley face. Before his passing, the wall was painted green, but the daisies hadn't been painted yet. In remembrance, we now celebrate his birthday and the day he passed with white daisies with a smiley face in the middle of one. I am Chelsea. I am Daniel's uh, little sister. And um, we were uh, seven years apart. Um, I was eight years old when my brother um, was killed. And um, it wasn't until after I graduated high school um, and pursued criminal justice that um, I started digging into my brother's case myself and really started investigating and looking at um, his case. Even though I was really young when Daniel was killed, um, I still remember him as being the pesty older brother, like chasing us around the house and with the purse strap and, you know, trying to attack us and being the honorary big brother. And so he was the typical big brother picking on us little kids so so I'm Gail Whitson I'm Daniel's mother I had Daniel when I was a senior in high school oh you were a baby I was a baby me and Grant Daniel kind of grew up together Um, Daniel was a very fun young kid never gave me any trouble up till about a, a year before his death is when he started like hanging with the wrong crowd to get with the wrong people and uh 
At that point, I had become a single mother, and I had three other children. So I was a single mom of, of four kids, and uh, it was difficult. It was difficult times. And like I said, me and Daniel kind of grew up together. Daniel could entertain himself. He could entertain the neighbor kids. He he was just he there was he never gave me any trouble. He was I would say one of my best children when he was younger. <laughs> But he made up for it when he became a teenager. Mm-hmm. And then I was single on my own with him and again, and it was it was difficult. He was mainly into music. Uh, growing up and stuff, he liked cars and that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. So we got him in baseball. He wasn't much of a baseball player. He didn't like that too much. We tried. But uh, he had a motorcycle. He loved animals. He, he had a, uh, a newspaper route. Hmm. And when he'd go do his newspaper route, when he'd come back, he'd have like 10 dogs following him. I'd be like, oh where'd gosh. all these dogs come from? I, I petted them, and they followed me home. <laughs> so then he'd have to go back around and, and take every dog back home. <laughs> we did adopt one and named it Bo. Yes, he had one stinky old dog named Bo. <laughs> stinky old dog. Oh, it was stinky. It was bad. But he loved Bo, and Bo loved him. Oh. But he was very outdoorsy. So he liked catching crawdads and... Yeah, there's a little creek just uh, probably about 10 blocks from our house. And he'd go down there with his little Boy Scout camping thing and he'd mm-hmm. catch crawdads and cook them. <laughs> Did he eat them? Yes. Oh. <laughs> well, at least he was cooking them. Yes. <laughs> but he liked to be outside. He liked Boy Scouts. He liked to do outdoor stuff, camping, skateboarder. He was a skateboarder. That was big during that time, too. Huge. Yeah. 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 I had one person tell me, um, this person went to school with him and said that he was into music so much so that sometimes he would spend all day literally just speaking in lyrics. Yes. At one time, he went to a Star Wars convention and came back and he was learning Klingon. Oh, wow. Oh, wow. (laughs) That's fun. In 1994, Daniel began hanging out with a bad crowd. He often disappears for days or weeks on end and informs his mother, Gail, that he has joined a gang called Crips 8-Ball. He will not disclose member names to Gail other than M.H., whom Daniel is supposedly selling drugs for at the time, and one other member. Daniel tends to get into a lot of trouble around this time, and in November of 1994, he enters Willowview Juvenile Center. Daniel begins receiving death threats, telling Gail that, quote, they showed up with a message that if he talked, he would be killed, end quote. Daniel's stay in Willowview is 30 days long. I had started working with a counselor to, because... Here we go. Started working with a counselor trying to get him on the right path because I could tell that he was hanging out with the wrong crowd and everything and uh, we had set up for him to go into inpatient because I was fearful and uh, the night before that he was set up to go to inpatient he left the house and he came back right before the transport showed up and his face was swollen and he said he had went to Oklahoma City and had been jumped into the game. He was supposed to steal a car and come back, so he made sure he found the junkiest car he could find because he felt bad about stealing a car. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Once he went up to to the placement where he was, you know, supposed to go, he said, after 30 days, he started telling me, you know, he said, I just wanted to see if I could do it. Mm. And they said they took him to a place and told him he had to steal a car, and then he had to run down what they call the gauntlet, 
where you run down a, and they beat you. Oh, my you gosh. through it. And he goes, I did it. But after he came to his senses and was in treatment for a while, he said, this is scary. They've came to my window and told me if I said anything that, because I placed him up in Oklahoma City. And that's where he supposedly got jumped into the gang. One of the houses that he would go spend the night at, that father was a crip. He was very secretive about names and stuff. Um, and he was 14. That was right before he turned 15. A little psychiatric hospital type behavioral health. Uh, he said they actually came to the window of his room and through the window told him. And that was just days after that they would... He never said who specifically? No. he no. Was, I begged him to give me names and stuff and told him I could protect him. And he said, no, they've threatened my sisters and my siblings. And it's scary, Mom. I don't know what I got myself into. The rest of the year does not go well for Daniel either. He gets suspended from school and not long after is charged with petty larceny and ends up in the first offenders program. Since its inception in 1995, the Oklahoma Association of Youth Services, the first time offenders program curriculum, is designed to emphasize and develop prevention and diversionary skills for the youth that have been showing signs of juvenile delinquency behaviors. It allows juveniles who have been identified by law enforcement, court officials, and other community resources as having committed acts that might otherwise face incarceration or persecution the opportunity to benefit from a psychoeducation educational rehabilitative program designed specifically for juveniles. They also had a day treatment where he went to school there, Mm -hmm. like for the troubled kids went there. They were given the teacher's fits. In December of 94, Daniel went missing again for another few weeks. Gail tries to get help from authorities, but to no avail. Eventually, Daniel returns home with no explanations, but decides to move in with his father, Harvey Furr. Well, when I went to authorities, I just I had to fill out the paperwork to describe what he was wearing when he left. Was and it? Did you fill out a missing persons report? Yes. Okay. And um, what he was wearing, and if we had fought, he was very, very, very independent. He would just take off, and uh, he was starting to struggle at that point, maybe because uh, of his father and stuff. He had some issues going on there with a lot of 15-year-old boys if their father's not in the picture. Mm-hmm. And he actually had a different father than my other children because I had him when I was in high school. But when I married Harvey, he adopted him. Mm-hmm. And then he had come to meet his real father. And that that just kind of does something to those 15-year-old boys yeah. when they don't try to figure out their own identity and who they are. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, he came into his life, and then he went away. Yeah. And then Daniel really started acting out. They don't realize that back then there was not social media. Mm-hmm. There was not um, cell phones. There mm-hmm. was not, you know, so you would have to go to see people. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't unusual. You could call on the landline. <laughs> well, yeah, but it wasn't mm-hmm. unusual for for people my age you to just, just show take up. off yeah, you just, you and just go, go wherever. Mm-hmm. And so that, you know, yes, for him being gone, you know, for a certain amount of time, but it wasn't unusual for people my our age to just go because mm-hmm. we we did a lot we would go around the neighborhood all until <laughs> my mom would be like exactly. yeah, get home. Mm-hmm. you know and so yeah. that's what you did yeah and so i just want to add that it's because people are you know think well why didn't you just call why didn't you just call me there wasn't there, you really it was 1995 yes well, i just want to okay. make sure everyone remembers the time we're talking we're we're a little older all right so <laughs> leaves alone <laughs> 
Where that happens, they just put it in the NCIC, mm-hmm. and that's about it. That's they don't it. go looking for them. I would go give names and addresses, and I went to a few myself, but no. they don't get out and look for yeah. them, and they still don't. That was the thing, but he had, he had kind of was with somebody that I figured he was kind of hanging out with mm-hmm. uh, and told them I needed to talk to him and gave them a number. And I don't know if we should be saying names and stuff on here, so I'm not probably not that to name. It. Okay, <laughs> I know that probably ruffles some feathers. But we uh, can say I gave a, a very prominent business person. Okay, we become prominent, well known, well known um, business. For everybody, literally everyone in Ada knows that name, so that's yes. why I say we. Can't. He it came into the hardware store where I was working, and I said, "I know that my son's hanging around some people that you know." And I want you to give my phone number, and I would like for him to call me. And that night he called. Mm. And uh, I said, I, I should. Coincidence? Yes. I said, you could come home, and uh, your dad said you could go live with him, mm-hmm. which was Harvey. And so he said, oh, really? Okay. So he came right home mm. and went to go stay with Harvey. In January of 95, a day before Daniel turns 15, a boy at school is attacked by a gang. This gang includes a boy named Anthony Taylor. Anthony Taylor is well known by many at this point to antagonize and bully many, including Daniel. Daniel lives with this behavior from Anthony and his gang friends for over half a year. In June of 1995, a childhood friend of Daniel, will call the fourth scout, tells me that he spoke with Daniel around this time. He says that Daniel told him that he thought he had made a group of guys very upset with him and they were making threats, but he wasn't too worried about it. The friend states that Daniel was actually in really good spirits and told him that he was happy and had been doing well. July 4th, 1995. Daniel is seen at Wintersmith Park where Ada puts on their annual fireworks show. Chelsea, his sister, sees him there. So I remember us sitting around, so at the park you always bring a blanket and you can sit Mm -hmm. on the ground, and so we're all waiting for the fireworks to start, and Daniel had walked up and he was all soaking wet, and we asked him what happened, and his friend had pushed him in the lake. His Um. friend, air quotes. (laughs) (laughs) He didn't have good friends. That wasn't the last time I saw him, but that's the last, like, big memory that I have. Big interaction. Yeah. Another witness, R.G., says that she saw Daniel at Wintersmith Park on the 4th of July by the dam. She was with her friends K.K. and Crystal Cavanaugh at the time. She spoke with Daniel, and she said that two white males were already with Daniel that she did not know. But she says they both had short, dark hair and says they looked like, quote, thugs wearing baggy shorts and were Daniel's age or older, end quote. She said she asked Daniel what he was up to, and he told her he was just simply walking around the park. She said she saw another friend nearby and left that conversation with Daniel to go speak with them, leaving KK and Crystal Cavanaugh to talk with Daniel. It wasn't long, and they all dispersed. Crystal Cavanaugh stated that she witnessed Daniel there that day as well, and that he was being threatened by a boy we'll call S.Y. The threats were apparently of death, and S.Y. was in fact a part of Anthony Taylor's gang. 
However, RG stated that she does not recall seeing SY at the park that day. It's important here to note that Crystal Cavanaugh was in fact murdered in 2007 by a man named Alan Gastineau, who shot her five times with a 45 caliber pistol before shooting her in the head as he stood over her. Assistant District Attorney Chris Ross at the time said Gastineau told police Crystal knocked on his door. Gastineau said Crystal was beating on his door saying, quote, please let me in, please let me in, end quote. He said she claimed her boyfriend was beating her. During a recorded interview, Gastineau said after letting her in, quote, I loaded one of my pistols in case the boyfriend came to the door, end quote. After leaving the room momentarily, Gastineau said he returned to find Kavanaugh going through some of his stuff and was afraid she was going to steal something from him. Quote, I thought she was going to grab something and run out the front door, so I decided to open up on her, end quote. And when asked what he meant by open up, Gastineau responded, pull the trigger. Detective Tracy Jackson said Gastineau fired several 45 caliber bullets into Crystal Kavanaugh, and after she fell, he admitted he stood over her and fired a final shot into her head. Gastineau then called 911 at 10.56 p.m. on November 24, 2007, to report he had shot a woman who walked into his house. According to Ada Police, Gastineau and Crystal lived at opposite ends of a duplex in Ada, Oklahoma. Gastineau was eventually found not guilty by reason of insanity. Back in Daniel's timeline, we jump to July 6, 1995. Daniel was seen by Gail that morning. He was also seen at his grandmother's house that day. This is the day that Daniel and his father Harvey get into a fight. Daniel leaves Harvey's house, and this is the last time Harvey sees him alive. So my dad was out of town or out of state, um, and while he was gone, uh, Daniel was to stay with my mom, um, and Daniel had broken the house and stolen some items from my dad, and so um, upset my dad that he had broken in and stolen something from him. Um, if anybody ever knew my dad, he was big on, you, you don't steal, you don't lie, anything like that. So for, for Daniel, it. his own son, to break in his house and steal something from him um, was really upsetting for him. Um, and so he did confront Daniel about it. He had actually, my dad had went to my grandma's house to confront Daniel about it, and they had gotten into an argument, and so then my dad left. Um, And this was actually on July 6th, when that, when he confronted Daniel at my grandma's house. Mm, Okay. Um, And the bad thing about that is that's something my dad had always had to live with was that's the last thing that him and my brother had gotten into was that argument. Um, he felt he, like there was no resolution. He he hated that that was the last thing he said to his son was, you know, that the words got heated or mm. whatever. Um, you know, and then a few days later, you know, he loses Daniel and you can't ever take that back. Mm. Um and so I know throughout the years after that, um, my dad, dad battled a lot of depression and um, definitely blamed himself um, instead of 
trying to help Daniel during that time. You know, he had, he argued with him. Um, mm-hmm. So that really, really was hard. I think it's hard to just be a parent. You never know if you're doing you're doing the <laughs> right thing is. anyway. So, I mean, in his mind, he probably thought that he was doing the right thing by disciplining well, him. Well, absolutely. And, I mean, as a parent, then, you always want to to steer your kids in the right direction and explain to them, you know, you know right from wrong. Mm-hmm. And that was one of his big, my dad's big quotes was, you know right from wrong. And he had the conversation with Daniel in a frustrated manner. Um, he did address the issues, but it was never in an ill way. Like he did it out of love and being a parent. Yeah. But that kind of forced Daniel to come back to my house mm. where he didn't want to to give in and be there either. Mm-hmm. Because I was the strict me parent. <laughs> well, yeah. I went through his room and I found some money. I found like $85. Oh. I was stashed in his mattress. The day that he left, we'll put it that way, I confronted him. And he, he was asking his sisters and stuff, you know, did you get it? Did you get it? And then I finally said, I got it. Mm. And if you will tell me where you got this, you know, I will give it right back. Mm-hmm. He said, just give my money, Mom. We got a big fight. So the last time I ever talked to my son, too, it was mm-hmm. a big fight. Mm-hmm. Because I wouldn't give him the money unless he told me the truth of where he got that money. Mm-hmm. And he walked down the street and away. And that was my last words with him, too. Mm-hmm. So I lived with a lot of regret on that, too. Yeah. Daniel is witnessed at a boy's house later that day. We'll leave his name out. So either this boy was not interviewed about this or the statement he gave wasn't made available to our team. It's also unclear where Daniel stayed that night. July 7th, 1995. Daniel is seen by Crystal Cavanaugh at 2.15 p.m. getting out of a black car at McDonald's. A witness states that Anthony Taylor and his crew showed up at a friend's house and invited them to a party at the quarry later that night. According to authorities, it is believed that this night, July 7th, 1995, is the night Daniel is murdered, either late that night or early into the 8th at this party. From statements to police, we gather that there could have been around a dozen possible witnesses to Daniel's murder that night, all underage kids he went to school with, or, quote, gang members. However, on July 8th, a girl we'll call MC says that L.M., who was Anthony Taylor's girlfriend at the time, told her that she saw Daniel around 5.30 p.m. on the 8th. She does not say where, and I do not have an interview with the police from her. This is uncorroborated at this time. It is unclear if she simply said this to cover for her boyfriend, Anthony. When I was speaking to people, um, even even when I was talking to some people about, um, like... Just simply going to school with Daniel and who he was and stuff like that. Every single person I talked to, even if it was that simple, was like, don't mention my name. No one wants their name mentioned. I had one girl, she was in prison and she wrote to me and she was a a girlfriend of Daniel's at one point. And she wrote and told me how she loved me and how she, you know, asked all about the girls and stuff. And it was a Christmas card. And I wrote back to her and, and she said she kept his picture up there because his picture's on the king of clubs on their on their playing cards. Mm-hmm. And so she said she keeps this picture right there and thinks of him all the time and just went on and on. And I wrote back to her and told her that was really a nice card and 
I just wish that all the people that were there mm-hmm. that know something that aren't coming forward and telling me that's the worst that they could do to me and she didn't write back she got out of prison she didn't come around she hasn't come around me again yeah that's the thing is a lot of people i believe mm-hmm. saw something yeah you hear a lot of things you do yeah and that's the thing is so that different directions. there's a lot of, especially when you get kids you know at the time i think um Memories can be inflated or skewed or... Do you want me to tell you? Yes. You're the psychologist. You tell me. It's because, and I've said, I've talked about this before, when you're young, your short-term memory is very acute. Your long-term memory is not great. Mm. As you get older, your short-term memory wanes and your long-term memory gets... is, is... acute that's why i can't remember why i walked into this room five minutes ago no i'm just kidding (laughs) so when you're young at that teenage you know early teenage age middle teenage age your long-term memory is just really starting to become stronger and your short-term memory is still kind of strong so what's happening is you have these two conflicting memory banks your subconscious and your conscious that kind of fight against each other and so sometimes you remember things as more as you want to than as they actually were at that time yeah because you have two different conscious and subconscious kind of conflicting now when you get older that doesn't happen that much because your long-term memory is intact your short-term memory goes and so really what you remember it comes out of that long-term memory bank but when you're younger a lot of things come out of that short-term memory bank and you that doesn't quite agree with what you've dumped over into your long-term memory on july 11th 1995 at 5 55 p.m a 911 call came into the ada police dispatch from pastor bill galbraith Bill, at the time, was the pastor for the First Presbyterian Church in Ada and the scout troop leader for Troop 9. He informed dispatch that several Boy Scouts from his troop, which was also Daniel's troop, had reported to him that they had found a body at the west side of the old brick plant, or quarry, just east of the church near the rock cliffs. Dispatch notified the Pontotoc County Sheriff's Office of the call. The brick plant was located at the time at 1600 Curlab Road in Ada, but it's now a residential area. At 6.15 p.m., Deputy Jeffrey Humphers arrived at the First Presbyterian Church and spoke with Pastor Bill, who informed him of the three Boy Scouts who had found the body. Deputy Humphers then spoke with those boys, the first being Brandon Barnes, who was 14 at the time. He stated that the Boy Scouts met at the church every Tuesday around 6 p.m., He and other Boy Scouts, Stanley Anderson and Richard Ellison, were killing time before the meeting and walking around the cliffs of the old brick plant. Barnes, the first to notice, and then Anderson and Ellison, while peering over one of the cliff faces, saw what appeared to be a person at the bottom of the cliff about 30 feet below. Another scout, whom we've been calling Scout 4, and also one of Daniel's childhood friends, who we talked to personally, said that the boys first noticed their troop flag at the bottom of the quarry and didn't know it was a body at all. They then went down to check it out and realized that the flag was wrapped around something large. They then opened the flag and that's when they saw the body inside. The the troop master is deceased now too. Yes. So, but I've talked to him and, and he's never told me that story. Barnes described the body as being dried out and he could see bones. 
He said there was no clothing except for a skirt, and at the bottom of that skirt, it was turning black. He said the body had dark hair and was lying on its stomach and wearing tennis shoes. The other boy's descriptions were the same. The fourth scout also told me that Daniel would run away often, but would always let his friends in the troop know that he had run away and was okay by taking the troop flag with him when he went. He often slept in the quarry and used the flag for a blanket when sleeping there. The troop flag was not easily obtainable as it was kept locked in the church activities center and you had to know how to get it. He said that the flag was in fact gone when they arrived for the meeting that day, so he assumed Daniel had taken it again. He said the boys discussed the body that night because they still had their scout meeting afterwards and the consensus was that it was not Daniel. The hair was long and the body was too short. They had not even initial even considered that it was Daniel. They had actually thought that it was probably the homeless person that had been camping around the area when they found it. The fourth scout said that there was a homeless man that had been camping around the area for about a year prior to the body being found. He also said that they never saw that guy again after that day. Uh, the, The weird thing with it is that, I mean, you wouldn't really know. Like, how, how would you know if there was a homeless person there back in 1995? You can go back, which is what I did. I went back and looked at NamUs to see if there was simply any missing persons cases other than Daniel's around that time. And we looked through all of the United States. And because, because NamUs wasn't really a thing back then, now you have people going in and inputting all of that information now. So... I'm sure that that's not a high priority. We only found for a lot of one in the area. Yeah, we just, no, we found two. We found two, but one just ended up like not being. Yeah, a match and at then all. the third one was from a different part of the country. Yeah, um, I forget where that that one that kind of matched Arkansas. Arkansas, right? Yeah, but but I mean, you just don't know. But I'm sure that in a police file somewhere. There is a missing persons report that matches from that date and and time, but well, you're always going to have drifters. I mean, yeah, we have them now still. Yeah, you, you know, the, you're always going to have that. I, but it's the point that they're drifters, so mm-hmm. they're probably not going to stay around one place, especially once people see them. Well, I they're mean, they're not going to stay around I that did. place for very long. Okay, if there's a homeless guy, and and then there's. And he's not the one that's murdered. And, and there's a murder that takes place at the place that he usually sleeps. I, I bet you he's going to find a new place to sleep. Yes. Yeah, because... I'm just saying. They, they, they're drifters for a reason. They just... They drift into the background so you, mm-hmm. you don't mess with them. At around 6.20 p.m., Sheriff Glaze, Wes Edens, and Deputy Jack finally arrive at the church. To the officials, the body appeared to be badly decomposed. Edens begins taking photographs at this time, and Glaze notifies OSBI agent K.P. Larsh to assist in the investigation. Officials describe the body as laying on its back, with its head to the west and feet to the east. The flag was never recorded by any official, and the fourth scout says that it was in their possession at the time of their meeting that night. If someone removed the flag from the body, this would explain why the boys say the body was lying on its stomach, and then later officials say it was on its back. 
Both of those statements come from official reports, so maybe there is something going on with this flag after all that was never officially reported. The clothing on the body appeared to be a light-colored tank top, dark shorts that later OSBI would describe as no-fear shorts, and white Nike tennis shoes. There were several large rocks located to the south, east, and west of the body. One small bush was located on a slope between the body and the cliff, and there were many noticeable beer cans and cases around the area of the body and the cliff. Agent Larsh of the OSBI arrives along with Dr. Larry Cartmill around 8.10 p.m. Joe Presley and James Hayes from Criswell Funeral Home arrive at 8.44 and remove the body and transport it for autopsy. A note here that the two men from Criswell's did tell the family that the man that they took to be autopsied had, quote, shoulder-length hair, end quote. I talked to one of them, and when I talked to him, I said, I just, all, I, all I wanted to ask you is, was the hair long enough to put back in the ponytail? Because K.P. Larsh asked me if his hair was long enough to put back in the ponytail. And I said, was the bo- hair on that body long enough to put back in the ponytail? He said, oh, yeah. And I saw a picture of the body that K.P. Larsh let me look at, oh. and the hair went along the shoulder to the end And I said, just explain this long black hair to me. And he said, I understand you're in denial. I'm not. I just come out of homicide case, you know, classes. And I said, I just want to know where this long, if it's my son, where did this long black flowing hair come? And I ran my finger along the hair. And he goes, you're in denial. The OSBI states that the top of the cliffs had graffiti painted on them, and the area was known as a local party spot. Below the cliffs is an abandoned shale pit, which was used by partygoers and dirt bikers. They said in the report that Daniel was lying on top of beer cans. Everyone leaves the scene at 9.25 p.m. Evidence collected via OSBI report. The victim's blood fingerprints of the victim, natural light beer cans, primo beer cans, stag light beer cans, clothing, tag, and fibers found on a ledge of a cliff near a tree, a cigarette lighter with two ponytail holders wrapped around it, a leaf with blood spatter found one foot above the victim's head, a silver knife found stuck in a tree that was on the ledge above the victim, a black leather knife case found 24 feet west of the tree, plaster impressions of shoe tracks. And Chelsea said later that fingernail clippings were collected, but we don't know if those were ever processed and have since disappeared. So my dad wanted to know where the body was found and somebody took him to that location and they had stated that there was a knife in my dad's vehicle. And so so they, they questioned my dad and he willingly said yes please if by all means search my vehicle sign the release to do so they searched his vehicle and came up with a pocket knife so we had thought that the body was sent to oklahoma city for the medical examiner there but it was in fact sent to larry cartmill md at 430 north monta vista in ada oklahoma it says authorized 
by the medical examiner from Oklahoma City at the bottom of the report on page one. I assume this was done because of the overwhelm that the Oklahoma City medical examiner had from the Oklahoma City bombing that took place only months prior. But think about what happened in 1995. It's a huge year for people who lived in Oklahoma. April 19th, Timothy McVeigh bombed the Murrah building. Those people have been identifying 168 bodies just a couple months prior to this, and I'm pretty sure the last ones came out on June 1st. Like I said, I I don't know exactly the way things happened, but I have a feeling there was a lot of paperwork and a lot of things involved even after people were identified to their loved ones. I just can't help but wonder if other things didn't get put on the back burner. Like he he didn't get the attention that this case needed because they were dealing with something. You had to have these numbers to charge this man with 168 cases of like first degree murder or whatever you want to. I mean, what, at that level, I don't even know what you call that, but you have to have a set number, you know, to charge him with. It just makes me sad to think. I, I don't want to blame somebody for that when I don't necessarily know. Gail says that she had to call the medical examiner's office in Oklahoma City to get the body released, but we believe that they simply signed off on the release of the body from Oklahoma City and that the body had never actually left Ada. I, don't know. I, don't know I had to call Oklahoma City to tell oh. them to release the body to Chris Wells, and oh. at that point they say that's still an unidentified body. We have not identified oh. that body yet. And I said, Jeff Glaze uh-huh. and KP Lars came to my door and said, go ahead and have them send the body to wherever because it's definitely him. So when I called them, they said, we have not identified him yet. Larry Cartmel, who did the autopsy report, was a pathologist. He passed away in 2016. He was the president of Southern Oklahoma Pathology Associates and the chief of anatomic and clinical pathology at both the Chickasaw Nation Medical Center and Mercy Hospital, and the medical director at Mercy Hospital of Medical Technology, all in Ada, Oklahoma. He was also a research affiliate for the Paleobiology Laboratory at the University of Minnesota in Duluth and a member of the Cast Iron Coffin Research Team for the Smithsonian Institute in Washington, D.C. His hobbies included archaeology and paleopathology. This man was well-established and well-revered. So how do we come to the conclusions that we're about to tell you. I want you to take note here that Daniel was 5'10 and around 150 pounds. So reports of the body being six feet tall, weighing 160 pounds with long black hair and no facial hair. Age is approximated at 25 years old. We believe the amendment was made to add Daniel's name age, descriptors, etc. after the autopsy was done. Because there is an amended stamp over unidentified, which is what was in place of the name, and at the bottom, other descriptors are recorded, with height being 5'4", or 64 inches, and weight is noted at 92.5 pounds, along with the age of 15 and the race of white. It also says his hair is brown. These two descriptors are both on the same report, one at the top, one at the bottom. I think this is the important part for everybody to realize why we had so much doubt. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Because it's almost ridiculous. Mm -hmm. You know, almost gets to the point of just ridiculous. Well, I mean, if you, today, if, 
anybody who's never even seen an autopsy report before, if I threw that down in front of them and it has descriptors on it and then I showed them a picture of Daniel, they'd be like, that's not, that's not right. It's just, it's just almost, I guess to me, it's just ludicrous. So I find it almost humorous because it's so ridiculous. Ridiculous. I got a, I got a Emmy, uh, autopsy before the sheriff did. They were telling the newspaper they still didn't have one. I had one in hand. I had somebody waiting up there at the ME's office for it. And it said 5-4. So then, That's yeah. what I started questioning. Yeah. Going, whoa. I yeah. was already back in the funeral range of stuff. And then I, whoa, wait a minute. The autopsy report also states that the body had C-shaped cut marks on the right second rib and cut marks on the clavicle near the sternal junction in the bone. And then a spiral fracture of the left second metacarpal bone which is a fractured finger, and could have been a defensive wound. It was observed through an open decomp hole in the hand. There are large, decomposed open areas on the left temple, neck, front of the chest, arms, dorsum of the left hand, thighs, and left leg. Maggots are present in those areas as well as in the esophagus, lungs, and the intestine. The skin is described as blackish and dried. The heels of the feet were relatively spared of decomp. The back is blackish purple and decomposed, so it is assumed that the body was lying on its back for the most part after death. He described a lot of the bones being disarticulated, meaning they separated from each other. This happens in later stages of decomposition. A large amount of blood was found pulled in the chest cavity, giving the medical examiner the impression that chest trauma was likely the cause of death. The autopsy report describes the clothing on the body as a tan top with green stripes. Other reports describe the top as white with brown-green stripes. The shorts are described as brown with green cross pattern, and then again by OSBI as no fear. And there is no cut marks on the clothing other than several holes over the back of the top. The Tox report states that 0.05% ethyl alcohol is in the system, but is negative for all other drugs. A body can produce small amounts of ethyl alcohol during the decomp phases, and we think that this is where the 0.05% comes from. Initial decay takes place for the first 24 to 72 hours. The body undergoes very little observable change at this time. Rigor mortis commences after three hours and lasts until 36 hours after death. The second stage, which is bacterial bloat, happens between days 4 and 10, and this is where lividity sets in. Active decay happens between 10 and 25 days, and this is where maggots are present and the skin blackens. Advanced decay takes place between 25 and 50 days, in which point maggots have broken down tissue, leaving some bones exposed, and insect activity begins to die down. After that, you have the final stage, which is skeletonization, or dry bones, after day 50. Heat does speed up the decomposition process. This is called thermal decomposition. In summer, high temperatures can accelerate the stages of decomposition, where heat encourages the breakdown of organic material, and bacteria also grows faster in a warm environment, accelerating bacterial digestion of tissue. 
It seems that the body was found in the active decay stage, near the end of decomposition with only advanced decay or skeletonization remaining, which would take around a month, even in the heat. This is corroborated by Mandy's boss, who was a death investigator for many, many years. For those of you wondering, like I did, what the temperature and the weather was like that week, the index for that week was between 95 and 100 degrees. So starting on the 4th, it was 95, the 5th, 88, the 6th, 94, the 7th, 96, the 8th, 96, the 9th, the 10th, and 11th, all were 100 degrees outside. That week, the wind speeds never went over 10 miles per hour, and there was no rain in sight. So the ME did not note what stages the maggots were in, nor their shape, size, or color. Maggots can be present at any stage, but these factors can tell us how long they have been present. Since these things were not recorded, we cannot use them for etymology purposes. Well, and also we've talked about, you know, the maggot infestation. Yes. And I'm how glad, old were these maggots? I'm glad you brought that up because I did notice, okay, this guy who did this, archaeology, all that stuff, you would think that he knows a good deal about etymology. He did have the wherewithal to put that the maggots were present, but he did not stay any sort of life cycle. Because that would tell, you know, that would tell us yes. how long they've been there and yeah because at first i was skeptical of them laying eggs you know and and how long those would but they said that could be done really fast but Mm -hmm. then i thought there's well what life cycle were they in then and that was not i questioned the medical examiner on that because i had took homicide investigation courses just got out of them and i said you put the day of death the day you found the body Mm mm-hmm and that's and, not right. And I said, he said, how, how else are we going to know? I said, the gestation of the maggots. Mm-hmm. And he said, we don't do that. And just yelled at me. I'm like, why would you put the date for a homicide investigation? You need to know the time of death. Mm-hmm. I mean, I just took these courses. Yeah. I had questions. I had valid questions. And they would just yell at me and tell me I was in denial. With all of this information, our team believes the body could have been dead for at least two weeks to a month, with no blood present at the scene other than one small leaf, and it's a suspected stabbing. We believe that there's a good chance that the body was killed somewhere else and then placed at this scene. This would also explain why, if the body was older than two weeks, no one found it in this spot prior, as we know that the scouts regularly meet at the church every Tuesday and played around this spot each week, yet did not witness the body there in previous weeks. It looks like the body was placed there. If you look at the pictures, it looks like it was laid on its back, placed there. Yeah, that's what we were talking about. I was like, it does not look like someone even just like dumped it off the cliff. It looks like someone took it there and put it down. If you, I wish you could see the pictures. I wish y'all There's no way that body came from the cliff. No way possible. Not, there was no broken bones. There was no broken That's bones. That's what There's I'm saying. Finger, finger, it would have like, a lot more broken. So there was a broken, a yeah, a finger I think was broken. That could happen in a stroke. I asked yeah. my husband what, because he's paramedic, so he goes on a lot of these calls. And I said, what is the highest or maybe the lowest that you can fall and if you were to fall on your stomach flat on your, on your stomach or your back that you would not have crushing injuries and he was like i don't know eight feet 
I was like, so if you fell any higher than what, 10 feet, you're going to break, something's going to break. He was like, oh yeah, something's going to break. I was like, what about 30 feet? He was like, you're done. Like you're going to have all sorts of broken stuff. So that's pretty much ruled out. Yeah. I mean, we know that that it wasn't even, everything that says he was pushed off, I feel like is not accurate because Mm -hmm. I don't think he was pushed. Even if it were after he were deceased and they threw it. Yeah. I just don't think throwing it. I just don't think that's so deep. Decomp isn't right. There's nothing broken in the body other than the finger. And that's not the only injury you're going to have from a fall like that from 30 feet up. So the family later learn that on this same day that the body was found, a dispatcher was told to go look through missing persons cases for someone with long black hair. Gail is informed that a body is found. She had not filed a missing persons report yet because Daniel had a habit of going missing, but he always came back. She calls about the body, and authorities tell her they cannot tell her anything until a missing persons report is filed. She officially files one, and they tell her they believe that it is, in fact, Daniel. Well, I got up that morning, and somebody, I'm not sure who they were, had called me and was yelling at me and asked me if I had reported him missing. And I said, no, I was planning on it. They were, like, yelling at me, telling me why, told me that he was his counselor. I didn't know who this person was. And they yelled at me and said, if you don't go report him missing today, I will. I said, no, I'll go do it. So I went down to the police station. I walked in there and I went up to the the lady at the front. And I said, I need to report my son missing. And she she said, okay. And there was a couple of guys standing behind her. And they were all just looking at me weird. And I said, uh... Don't I need to fill out the paperwork saying what he was wearing and when he left and all that? And they were like, no. I said, I've always had to do it in the past. And they said, no, we don't need it. So, okay. So I walked off and I went to work. And about an hour later, Jeff Glaze called me at work. And he said, what was Daniel wearing? <laughs> and that's what I told him. And they said, well, don't get alarmed, but we found this body last night. But don't be, we haven't identified him yet. And I would just went into a nauseous panic and I was gasping for air at work you know your child's gone that's don't get alarmed and then uh, I, I went on home and later on they come and told me that it was him they believed it was him but they needed dental records that's how I found out Sheriff Glaze tells Gail that the medical examiner's office said the body was 5'4 and around 100 pounds I went to the, the crime scene the next day, and that's when my little brother went down there. But all, it was not roped off no more. There was, like, rubber gloves laying on the ground. There were still a few beer cans around, and there was no blood splatters. In. July 12, 1995. OSBI sends off for dental records, and records are sent to OSBI via Daniel's dentist, Dr. Clark, who is now deceased. Richard Thomas Glass, DDS, did the dental comparisons. He passed in 2018, but at the time, he had the position of chief forensic dentist for the medical examiner's office and was called on to testify as an expert witness at trials as needed for his pathology and forensic expertise. It was Dr. Glass who directed the team of dentists 
dental students and support personnel in identification of the 168 victims of the Oklahoma City bombing, which would have taken place only four months prior and probably did not wrap up for a while, possibly even when this comparison came across his desk. And I don't see anywhere where it says, like, impressions were made or compared. I just, this is not a very complete report. I'm not sure how this was ever used to identify Daniel. And I'm sure you guys feel the same. Oh, definitely. Um, As a matter of fact, Chelsea, you were telling me that you had gone and spoken to the dentist? So I I have spoken to a dentist and I, I showed them this report that I had. Um, clearly, the x-rays that were sent from um, Daniel's dentist was done when Daniel was 11 years old. And right. so there's a huge gap in between those times. So when I had them look at this report and asked, you know, is there anything that you can tell me here to give me, some, you know, obviously I don't know about dental records and how they compare and that kind of stuff. So trying to get some um, information for that, um, they looked at it and said they would really be interested to see the x-ray comparison because nothing that they saw on this report made them think the slightest that you could do a comparison. So from my understanding from the report, they received the x-rays the same day they made that determination too. Well, Dr. Clark told me himself that the x-rays that he sent with them, his teeth would have fallen out by then. Mm. Because he still had baby teeth. Yeah, and he said that what the x-rays he sent was nothing that they could identify him off of. So those erupted teeth could possibly be baby teeth. Yes. That had grown back in, but there's no way that you could compare, make those comparisons. Right. It it would look like a new human. Exactly. There's no molars in it. Right. On July 13th, 1995, OSBI agent Larsh goes by Gail's home and tells her that the body has been positively identified as Daniel. The next day on the 14th, Gail calls the medical office a bit before 10 a.m. She is told by the medical examiner that the body has not been identified yet, that dentals and x-rays had not shown a positive ID. Later, Sheriff Glaze goes by Gail's home to tell her that the medical examiner's office was wrong and that the body had been ID'd as Daniel. I was supposed to let them know what funeral home to send them to, so I told him who, where to send it, and he said, that's still a John Doe. We have not positively identified that body. And I'm like, what? And he goes, let me go check. And he come back, and he said, no, that has not been positively identified. Then I call KP Lars uh-huh. and say, what is the deal you told? And they said, well, let me check. And they uh-huh. called back and said, yes, Gildy, let's go ahead and make arrangements. Um, On July 19th, you guys had Daniel's funeral. Um, And here's something that I found weird in the weeks after the funeral. Now, you met Crystal Cavanaugh at the funeral, Gail. Um, In the weeks after, she came to your house wanting to see Daniel's room. Did she just come to your door and knock on your door? Mm -hmm. Her grandma brought her over there, and she said, I'm a friend of Daniel's. Could I see his room? And I said, well, he really wasn't living here at the time and she said well I just want to see his room it would make me feel better and just as a young person I took her up there and said this is his room we were in the process of redoing his room 
and we had painted a wall a dark green mm-hmm. and he wanted daisies all over this wall mm-hmm. and one of the daisies he wanted a smiley face okay so the room was kind of in a bad way yeah. and i really didn't want to take her up there but she just was insisted she just wanted to see where see daniel's room that's and i'll show her daniel's room and then she left that's real strange i thought so too that's just real and crystal strange. is one that like kp lar said quit talking to her she's just she's causing trouble in this case really yeah and that she was making up stories and that i needed to quit talking to her at all that's real weird. I mean, now I have talked to a lot of people, um, some that that even knew her really well, and and even in the, those witness statements, there were a lot of people that said, "We don't trust her. We don't trust anything she says." She, I think, one said something like, "Quote: She makes up lies to get attention, stuff like that." So, how reliable is she? I don't know. If you show that you're going there to see the room then you're showing that you're not involved in any situation because you want to be close to the situation does that make sense you want to feel like like we were close so i wouldn't have done this well yeah you're saying if i'm going to come there to their house and and want to see the room then i couldn't have obviously had been involved in any way shape or form so basically you're just taking yourself away from the situation that next month, Agent Larsh tells Gail that he is being told by some pretty high up people to close the case as a suicide. Here's what he came in the, in the hardware store where I was working, and we got over to where nobody was, and he said, "Did did you, Daniel have long hair?" And he said, "Long enough to put like back in a ponytail." I said, no. He was okay. And then uh, he asked me his sexual preference. And and then he said, um, he said his constituents are wanting to close the case on suicide. And I just looked at him and I thought, well, go ahead. And then I can get an attorney. Because if you close it on suicide and we know it ain't suicide, mm-hmm. I can come back at you. So go ahead and do it. But we all know it was suicide. And he goes, no, 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 I don't believe it was suicide. Then he left the hardware. Up until the funeral, I didn't question all these things. Mm -hmm. I didn't start looking at stuff. I didn't. And then, wow, what have I gotten into here? All right. So in September 95, the autopsy report comes back. Was that the uh, the official autopsy? You said you you had seen the autopsy before anything. What I did is I had somebody that lived up there Mm -hmm. be at the office. When it was supposed to be released, mm-hmm. they got a report. The next day, Ada News called me and asked about the autopsy report, and they said that KP Lo- uh, Jeff Glaze said that it had not been released yet. And I said, "Well, I have a copy." Ooh. So then Jeff Glaze found his copy after so that. He, yeah, I bet he did. He didn't want anybody mm-hmm. to know it was in that report. That's what that tells me. October twentieth, nineteen ninety-five. Gail goes to the Pontotoc County Sheriff's Office to discuss the death of her son. 
She spoke with Deputy Humphers, and she stated that about three weeks prior, a young girl, who we'll call M.M., informed her that she had heard that two boys named Anthony Taylor and G.M. were at the Rock Cliff that Friday, and they, quote, punked Daniel, and then stabbed him in the neck. They then threw him off the cliff. M.M. asked G.M. about it, and G.M. stated that someone else did it. GM told her that he had taken two lie detector tests about this case and flunked them both. So apparently they were looking into this person and he had flunked these lie detector tests. But Jeff Glaze was really good friends with his father. Oh. He was a good old boy. <laughs> okay. Well, there it is. <laughs> it was He was the preacher that they would take the inmates, uh, uh-huh, too, on okay. Sunday. There it is. You see what I'm saying? Oh, my gosh. Okay. So, and then this JS. Apparently, he used to be very good friends with Daniel. Um, up to a point in which Daniel stole some money from you. And you caught him. And he blamed it on this person. He blamed it on JS. And then they were not friends after that. They were not allowed to be friends after that. <laughs> they weren't allowed to be <laughs> he friends. He lived right around that. the corner. Um, and there were some rumors that people were hearing after the fact that he had something to do with Daniel's death. Here is where we get into some alibis. While I won't read the statements I have, what I can say is that some of these alibis from Anthony Taylor and his gang simply don't add up. Some people were never followed up on or interviewed at all. Again, I'm not sure what the police have that we don't. There's a good chance that some were, and we were not given access to those statements, like that of Crystal Kavanaugh. Or the OSBI may have done those interviews, and those were held from release as well. What I can say is that GM's alibi eventually falls apart. Anthony Taylor himself states that he was home alone on the night of the 7th, and lots of these guys seemed to have their girlfriends at the time covering for them and stating that they were with them on the night of the 7th. Okay, so this same um, GM person said that he heard Crystal Kavanaugh ask Anthony Taylor if he had ever killed anyone. And Anthony Taylor said, quote, yes, and you're going to be next because you're a little too nosy. So this GM... Uh, on August 1st, 95, an investigator gets permission from GM to obtain a hair sample. I guess this person was looked at so hard that they thought they needed to get a DNA sample from them. Not that I saw anywhere where they had anything to even compare it to. Like that they found any foreign hair or anything on the body or around the body on the crime scene. I didn't see anything like that, so I'm not sure what they would even compare it to. Um, however... Uh, he does give a hair sample willingly. In his statement, he admits to telling some people that he and Anthony actually did kill Daniel, but then claims that it was only a joke. Why would you joke about that? Anthony Taylor. Now, there is a statement in there from him. He obviously denied any involvement in, in Daniel's death. He also said in the statement that he, quote, liked Daniel, which I think is strange because apparently he was his like one of his biggest bullies, which is, of course, what you're going to say. Of course. So he claims that he was home on the night of the 7th by himself. But I think that's just, mm, 
Anyway, so yeah, he says he's home alone that night. Um, he says that he never told anyone that he was going to kill Daniel or that he, and that he would beat up anyone who said that. There are a lot of statements that we have available to us that we believe could be considered hearsay. The only reason that I'm about to tell you any of this is so that you can see what the rumor mill looked like at the time. There's a kid named BH. He said that he talked to Crystal Cavanaugh on the bus one day, a couple of weeks after the body was found. Crystal told him that SY, which hung out in this group, in the, in Anthony's group, and SY's brother, which also hung out in Anthony's group, um, had been bragging that they had, that they had killed Daniel. Said um, She said to BH that SY said Daniel went to a party where SY, GM, and Anthony and some others got him drunk and then took him out to the quarry where they peed on him and drove nails through his hands. While at the cliffs, she said S.Y. and someone else, trigger warning, raped Daniel, stabbed him and then pushed him off the cliff. She claims that one of her friends was there and witnessed it, but would not say who. But, but see, this is what I'm saying, though. This is another thing that Crystal is saying that like doesn't add up to what she said previously. So... Or at least people are saying she has said. I, I don't know. I'm just saying. Like, I think I think this girl was muddying the waters. Yes. There was another person, BS, that said about three weeks after the body was found, ST told BS that SY, his brother, and some others had raped Daniel before killing him. Also known as punked. Um, ST told BS that GM and Anthony Taylor had confessed to a girl, I'm going to leave her name out, that they had killed, only because I don't have a statement from her, anyway, um, that they had killed Daniel because he was trying to, quote, get out of the game. Now, that's something that I could, I could understand because from, from what we know... That so does seem like something he was, yeah, trying to do. So there's another girl, JD, that told this BS that SY and his brother were looking for him because he was finding out too much information about how they killed Daniel. And so BS told investigators that neither brother liked him before Daniel's death, but after his death, one of the brothers started sucking up to him for some reason. Don't know what that has to do with anything, but there's that. Um, so back to RG, this is, she did have a lot of information from earlier with the alibi and stuff like that. Uh, this is the part that I feel like is probably a little bit of hearsay. RG said that Crystal told her that SY told her friend, KK, that he was thinking about killing Daniel before it happened. And then after the story broke in the paper, SY told KK that he was glad that Daniel was dead. So someone told someone who told RG that JS told them that Daniel was dead before they came, that came out in the paper. So that's what I'm saying. It gets very confusing, but there's a lot of people here that obviously should have been followed up on several times. 
someone may know something that's going on mm-hmm. and it, it's like, oh yeah, I heard this, this, this. And then investigators are like, oh, okay. Well, then I never see an interview from the person that they referred them to. Well, OSBI was involved in this as well. And those are records that I've never been able to see. So some of these could be those done by OSBI. Right. And we right. just don't have the... Yeah. yeah, and we just don't have that. In August of 1996... Gail speaks with Daniel's dentist, Dr. Clark. Dr. Clark didn't believe that they could have matched ID with the records that he provided. He stated that an x-ray had not been done of Daniel's teeth since 1991 when Daniel was 11 years old. He said he would have lost teeth and new ones would have grown in, so it would be unlikely that an ID could be made from them. Those x-rays from 1991 were the ones sent to the medical examiner's odontologist and used in the comparison and eventual ID of the body as Daniel. We do have the official reports for that comparison. It's very light, and we agree. It seems unlikely a match could have been made from them. And as our friend Robin Warder would say, this is where the trail went cold. In September of 2003... Anthony Ray Taylor is found dead, stabbed to death by Oscar Worcester. Oscar was actually LM's brother, the girl who stated that she saw Daniel on the 8th at 5.30. She had also been Anthony's girlfriend at the time of the investigation. Anthony was spotted the morning of September 20th, 2003 by a passerby who saw him struggling in a ditch near a city street. He had been stabbed once in the back. He was taken to a hospital where he died later that night. According to officials, Anthony and Oscar were at a party at Anthony's home the night before. Oscar had stayed the night at Anthony's house. And the next morning, the two got into a fight. Oscar grabbed a knife during the fight and stabbed him. Witness told investigators that he saw Anthony choke Oscar and take money from his wallet at this party. Oscar later told an acquaintance that he'd been in a fight with someone who tried to rob him. He was talking about this occurrence. Officers arrested Oscar around 10 p.m. that night after he admitted himself into Rolling Hills Psychiatric Hospital in Ada. July of 2006. Daniel's family does a news story about possible exhumation of the body to test it to find out if it really was Daniel. The ME stated after it aired that they had a tissue sample from the body. The family is told they will need to obtain a court order for the samples. The ME called the the man that did the story on Channel 9 News Mm -hmm. and told him to call me and tell me, don't exhume the body, we have a sample. So I called him and said, okay, I need you to send the sample to lab my choosing and they said uh, you're gonna have to get a court order to get it so so they told you they have a sample but then they told you that you had to get a court order to get it yes news team that they had a sample to tell me to call me and tell me not to exhume the body right after we did the news story how convenient that we discussed we were going to get the body exhumed to do a dna testing Mm-hmm. to see if the body that we buried was Daniel's or not because of all the discrepancies, yeah. you know, that no one could ever explain to us. Mm-hmm. So for 11 years, we 
lived with that doubt, you know, and we wanted some closure, a little bit of closure since we couldn't get any other answers. Mm-hmm. Of course. So we did the big news story and they reached out to the news and said, do not exhume the body. We have a tissue sample. That's so inappropriate to reach out to the media instead of the family. Well, I thought so. I think so too. But they would like call them. They're like, well, we're just not going to give it to you. You have to get a court order. Which it's like, well, why did you even say that in the first place? Mm -hmm. In January of 2007, the family calls the Texas lab to see how the testing is coming along. They are told then that they never received the samples from the medical examiner's office for comparison. When Gail calls the Emmy, they tell her the tissue samples were too badly decomposed to be tested and informs her that they will need another court order to get the decomposed samples. Family requested another court order to release the sample to the lab anyway. While they are waiting on this second court order, and six months later, Joe Glover finds samples from blood from the body in the basement of the courthouse in Ada, labeled as Daniel Fur. It is sealed in an evidence bag with a sample of DNA, a leaf with blood, and hair samples. So we get the court order for them to release it. We set up the lab. Down in San Antonio, my mom sends her DNA down there. The court order is sent for them to release the sample. So we wait and we reach out to the lab to ask where the status was. And they said, we've never seen the, received this tissue sample yet. So I called the ME's office yeah. and asked them. And they said, it's too decomposed. I said, I don't care. It belongs to me now. I have a court order. Will you please send it to my lab? And they can determine how decomposed it is. Right. And they said, no, you'll have to get another court order. And I was just, every time they did that to me, it knocked the breath out of me. And here I was, a single parent trying to raise children and go to school and work. And they just kept knocking me off my feet. Just like every avenue that we tried to take on Daniel's case, there was some roadblock that seemed to pop up in every direction. So this was another one of those roadblocks that it was like, okay, do we do we spend more money? It costed four hundred dollars to get an attorney to get the first right. Right. And and the attorney said, I don't know what they're doing, Gail. He had to make up something. He didn't know what they were even asking for. No, they just had a room that had evidence on the evidence room. But it was just a small manila envelope, about eight by five. It was just stuck in a bunch of other stuff. It had Daniel's name on it. It was just a small envelope. Nothing else. No other evidence other than what was inside the envelope, which was the maple leaf, the blood samples, hair samples. But not clothes? No clothes. Or the knife. Where did, his, where did the clothes go? We don't know. That's so weird because that you would think that'd be something that they would for sure keep. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, that's strange. And so he asked uh, the DA at the time, Chris Ross, if he could release one of those blood samples to me so I could send it down to the lab where my DA, DNA was already at. Mm-hmm. And so that was allowed. I gave them the address and they sent it to them. The DNA and hair are sent to the lab and tested against Gail. That sample was confirmed to be Daniel's DNA. But where is the chain of custody for these samples? 
Why were they stored in the courthouse basement instead of the medical examiner's office or an official evidence locker? How did they have these samples after the medical examiner themselves stated that their samples were not viable and had no other samples? As a PI, Chelsea has been interviewing potential witnesses. Several people have come forward to her with information that has never been taken seriously by the police. Some of that information includes a woman who states she witnessed the murder of Daniel and that a gang member of Anthony's is the one who actually stabbed him. Another is a woman who says Anthony Taylor, among others, showed up at her house with blood on them, saying that they had killed Daniel. Let's take a look at an interview that Chelsea did herself with a woman we'll call DB in 2016. Some of the interview has been redacted, some names left out. Here are the parts that we can tell you. Now, you interviewed a bunch of people, Mm -hmm. yourself, Mm -hmm. and you have a bunch of statements Mm -hmm. yourself. One of those is from a woman we will call DB. Now, I do have, this is, I'm sorry, I'm laughing because your interview was so much more thorough. (laughs) But she was a private investigator. She had her license. Looking at your report compared to, like, official reports from the sheriff. Definitely. Ridiculous. Okay. So, you did get a statement from a woman. Mm -hmm. uh, We're going to call DB. Mm -hmm. And... You both were present when you interviewed this woman. So, DB says, I could hear them out of my left ear. The talking was done mostly by Anthony, and they were planning to go out to the gravel pit or rock quarry. And so, then they said, tonight's the night that, hateful word, will die. That boy is scary. He has the devil in him. I was listening, and then LS, which is another suspect in this, says... How are we going to get him there? How are we going to lure him there? Then someone else says, he's already going to be there. Then D says, I really don't want you to go. And that's why I think she knew what was happening. And I say she didn't go, but the more I think about it, I really don't know. They, the police, came to talk and they asked me if I knew anything about what's going on. I was like, all I know is they got into a van and they were talking for a couple hours before they left Then I got to thinking about it, and then I went down there and I talked to John Christian. I talked with him in the interrogation room at the DA's office for like two hours. And then, Chelsea, you say, when they came back to the house, was it just Anthony that came back? All of them came back. Right. And Anthony did too. This is Anthony saying this. So they all left in this van, Mm -hmm. and she's saying they came back to the house. Mm -hmm. And then Anthony came in and sat down beside her and said, quote, I told you I was going to do it, and I did it. And then he got up and walked into the other room. And you said, did any of the other guys talk about what happened? And she says, yeah, they were talking about the kicking thing. They said, quote, he put up a good fight to be a blank. Later that night, L.S. asked if I would give him a ride home. And his grandmother lived over there by Tower Road, and I said, yeah, sure, I guess. And Anthony asked if he could ride with me, and my stomach went flip-flop. I was like, yeah, sure. L.S., uh, C.U., and Anthony Taylor were in this vehicle with D.B. And she said, 
when we get there, we get out and I hear this chain and I was like, what the F is going on? About this time, Anthony, he hits old boy in the face, talking about CU, um, breaks his face. I mean, breaks his face. His jaw was, uh, his, his eyeball, his right eyeball right about here was almost out. He hit him twice with that chain. He landed back on me. I mean, blood was everywhere. That's how I know it happened. LS wouldn't have put the umph into it, I'm sure, because he was a coward. But he would definitely stand back and say, kick him again, kick him again. I could see it. Broke his jaw, broke his nose in two places, and his eye, you could see it. I was shaking like a leaf on a tree. I was like, oh my god, I can't drive. I can't get you to the hospital. You have to sit up. You have to sit up. I got him to Valley View, and they questioned me about it. And I told them what happened, but he wouldn't press charges. I was damn sure scared of him. Him walking in that room, I could be clear across it, and I could feel him walking in the room. And I would go anywhere and everywhere just so I wouldn't have to pass by him. He has the devil inside. His soul is cold. There are a lot of people that know something, have information, at least for character witnesses to some of these people at the time, never interviewed, never followed up on. And then it seems like after that first year, it's just the investigation almost completely just falls away. But to me, it seems like there was not enough interviewing done. And there's a lot of people that were never interviewed at all that you've even said, Chelsea, you've even said, I talked to so-and-so and and they were never talked to by the police. Yeah, because one of my big things was um, people's alibis and trying to put a timeline there. And there was one person I reached out to and... From my understanding, she was never questioned. And had she been questioned, then that alibi would have been invalid. And so obviously, alibis weren't even checked out. Which is like the biggest thing in a homicide investigation. It's out there that he had fallen into a bad crowd. But that he had also turned around and was trying to do better and save himself. People are pretty serious about Uh, group activities, gang type things. If you know certain things that could get people in a lot of trouble, it's really hard to leave that life, especially when you're in a town of 15,000 people. If this was a peer, like this 16-year-old, like, first of all, I'm going to be terribly sad if he took this secret to his grave. Somebody knew. Somebody else knows what happened. Daniel is not just a statistic to this family. And the people who knew him. You know, his siblings obviously love him. They're fighting for him. They want to know what the crap is going on. They've changed the course of their lives, their careers, whatever. And and his mom, too, trying to figure out what in the world happened. What went so wrong? There are no real answers in this case. Only more questions. Did the sheriff's department simply run out of leads? Did they get lazy? Did any of these kids actually witness or take part in Daniel's murder, or did they simply boast about it for street cred? It's known that for at least a year after the bombing, the medical examiner's office had an extra left leg that later was identified as a previous victim who was actually buried with the wrong left leg. So was the body found at the quarry misidentified due to an overwhelmed system in the months after the Oklahoma City bombing? Why did the medical examiner report one physical finding of the body only to change it later? Why has the autopsy report been left pending for 28 years? 
The point of this episode is not only to bring awareness to this case, but to plead with anyone who will reopen this case and investigate it properly. We understand that the new DA just took office in January, and he has a lot on his plate. He has a lot of changes that he wants to make, and we can see that he is already on his way to making them. We understand that they probably have a lot of things that may take priority over a 28-year-old cold case. But Daniel Furr was only 15 years old. The questions we have raised here in this episode should not be ignored. Contradictory reports, witnesses never spoken to, some never followed up on. A body that may not be Daniel's at all. His family has gone without definitives and peace for 28 years. Not only that, but there is a possibility that another man occupies Daniel's resting place. Another man with a mother and father, sisters, brothers, friends, who loved him, who probably want answers just as much as Daniel's family. Their loved one simply disappeared one day, never to be heard from again. If someone would start a new investigation and start with exhumation of the body and simply determine who lies below that headstone first, many hearts can start to heal. We beg any officials willing to reopen this case to find funding for this. We implore you to restart the investigation and work on it diligently until you get answers. Daniel's family was told they would have to exhume the body out of pocket, and we will find a way to help Daniel's family raise the funds to exhume and get their samples to a lab like Othram. But you have the opportunity to be this family's hero in finding who killed Daniel Fur, and possibly so much more. 28 years is far too long. Please don't let it become 29. If any of you out there have any information on this case, no matter how big or small you think it may be, please contact authorities. You can also send in an anonymous tip to our website at www.thesirenspodcast.com slash contact. The first form on that page will send us an email. You do not have to put your information into it. You can simply send the email. It will allow us to contact you back. The second form on that page is completely anonymous. If you simply want to see this case get solved and be an advocate for Daniel and his family, you can send a letter to the Pontotoc County Sheriff's Office or the District 22's new district attorney, Eric Johnson. Tell them that as a citizen and fellow human being, you want justice for Daniel Fur. Share this episode. Share our posts about Daniel. Follow the Justice for Daniel Fur Facebook page ran by Chelsea and the family. Sign and share our change.org petition. You can find the link on our website, social media, or in these show notes. Don't let Daniel be forgotten. Don't let his case grow colder. Justice will not be served until those who are unaffected are as outraged as those who are. Benjamin Franklin
You've reached the end of our episode. All suspects are innocent until proven guilty in a court of law. Join Raven next time on the Sirens Podcast. Do we have an outro? That's our outro, isn't it?